I'm Alex. And I'm Matt, and welcome back to the show. Our guest this week is Molly Crabapple, an artist and writer based in New York. Called an emblem of the way art can break out of the Gilded Gallery by the New Republic, she is drawn in Guantanamo Bay, Abu Dhabi's migrant labor camps, and with rebels in Syria. Molly is a columnist for Vice and has written for publications including the New York Times, the Paris Review, and Vanity Fair. Her illustrated memoir, Drawing Blood, will be published by HarperCollins in 2015. Her work is in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, we had a really good episode today. Um, if you are listening, uh, you may find that we are uh, racing through, or it may seem that we are. Uh, we were uh, so, sort of uh, uh, under some time constraints, so uh, apologies if it feels a bit rushed, but uh, I certainly think we covered a lot of ground. We definitely did cover a lot of ground. Uh, you know, uh, with with most shows, our listeners may have figured out there's our, our general set of questions we want to get out about how our how our guests uh, do the things they do and and what's helpful and what have they learned. Uh, and she she burns right through them. Um, and uh, from her start as an artist at four years old to uh, knowing always that uh, drawing would be uh, her career and. Uh, you know, what I found interesting, Alex, was that she described it as a practical career, and I've never heard of anybody describe uh, uh, pursuing a career in art as a practical thing to do. Well, certainly she's extremely successful at what she does, and um, uh, in the people go and visit the show notes, they can see um, the the things that she's done. Uh, certainly that her pictures from, from Guantanamo uh, are definitely worth everyone taking a look at. So at this point, we are coming around uh, episode number 11, and uh, we really thank you for, for taking the time to listen to our show. We've taken at least 11 hours of, of your time, and uh, by this point, you, you may feel like you, you understand the show, and we hope you enjoyed it. And to that end, we'd like you to review us uh, on iTunes, social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Um, if you feel strongly about the show one way or the other, please uh, let us know. Um, and uh, make your mark on the, the review sections online. That, that will help us uh, uh, get the show kind of out and, and, and uh, known to, to, to other people who protect uh, the moment. I kind of feel our audience are friends of ours and friends of their friends. Um, <laughs> so hopefully we can expand that uh, a bit further. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, now we'll just play the episode. Great. I guess kind of the first, the first thing um, I would ask, you know, I... I spent the past past few weeks kind of reading through your stuff looking at your uh looking at your work and there's kind of a great variety um and i'm interested how do you describe what you do or kind of what do you what, yeah how, how do you self-describe what are you about or however you want to answer that well i describe myself as an artist and a writer I'm primarily an artist by training. I've been drawing since I was four years old. Being an, art, being an artist and making pictures is almost like a drug addiction to me. I think if I was locked in a cell alone for the rest of my life, I would still do that. I started writing about two years ago. My first essay was just something about my arrest that I wrote out of sheer anger and wanting to make a lot of noise about how awful the NYPD is. And then after that, Vice gave me a column. If I was going to describe a through line from, with my work, I would probably just say it was a natural anti-authoritarianism, a desire to skewer the unjustly elevated, the pompous, and the cruel. 
So we're looking through your your work here, uh, and you know you just actually <laughs> referenced the the next few questions that um, that we're going to go through. You started writing, uh, I mean, started drawing it at age four, and now you know here we are. You've you've written for or drawn for uh, you know a wide range of uh, magazines and uh, including Vanity Fair. Uh, looking backwards, you know it seems when we take the the highlights of your of your drawing that it always had this kind of linear perspective. You start at age four and, and go straight to Vanity Fair. Did it always seem that way to you? Or uh, were there moments where you thought, oh man, you know, I don't know what's coming next? <laughs> I mean, I always knew I was going to be an artist, no matter what. I just knew that that was what I was built for, and there was really nothing else that I was kind of made for. I, I mean, my mom is an artist. My great-grandfather is an artist. Uh, being an artist to me was... I mean, it was like the family tradition. It was so natural. It was just it was just what I did. And it was mm-hmm. also incredibly practical to me. Like when I was this sort of obnoxious twit of a of an eleven year old, I would draw the more popular kids in school kind of as a bribe so that they wouldn't beat me up. And I later found that <laughs> I later found out that in the Russian gulag, this is what artists would do so criminals wouldn't beat them up. They would like draw flattering pictures of of of, of their co prisoners. This sort of using art to curry favor is one. <laughs> One of the most uh, archetypical artist behaviors throughout history, Amazing. but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I got my start sort of professionally as an illustrator for nightclubs. I worked as the house artist for the Box, which was this fucking depraved, decadent, really quite glorious nightclub in New York and London. I, and I, I started that gig when I was 24, and I would just you know sit at the edge of the stage, and I would draw all these impossibly cool dancers and hope they would talk to me. And eventually, I sort of integrated into the club. And I, I actually feel like the skills that I learned doing that were things that I later applied in journalism. You know, the quickness, mm-hmm. the um, way of using art to make connections with people, the capturing complicated scenes down in single lines. I mean, I, I. I it was funny, like, when I was drawing pictures of naked dancing girls, people were like, oh, you know, this is, this is silly work, it's, like, sexy, but it's ultimately silly. But then mm-hmm. when, I, when I did pictures of other types of things, people were like, oh, this is very serious, uh, you're intelligent, we can acknowledge that now. But I, I don't necessarily put those two types of work into boxes that are that different. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And and to go back to something you just said, you you just used a word that I actually very rarely hear associated with with uh, art and and drawing. Uh, you use the word practical. That that uh, drawing was always something very practical for you. You know the the kind of every man on the street might not guess that. Oh yeah, being an artist is a very practical career decision. Uh, it's always seemed that way to you as as you know practical career choice. Something I want to do. Well, as an artist, I could literally make money out of nothing in terms of raw materials. I guess I always, I always came to art as an illustrator, you know, as an essentially craft-based thing. I was never someone who was like, I'm going to make 25,000 crushed balls of aluminum foil and then write something about my feelings. You know, I actually, I drew, I drew the, the world in front of me. And the truth is, most people in the world really like that. You know, I mean, at one point, um, it was after I... I went to the United Arab Emirates and I um I did a big piece on migrant labor. At mm-hmm. at one point all of my translators friends were who were you know these like construction guys were looking at my piece and I was I was giving them all uh, portraits of themselves over WhatsApp. And like normally pe- people might not think like oh you know these like South Asian construction guys would be into art but they fucking loved it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um 
and I generally found that being able to create something that people that liked that or that people from a wide variety of backgrounds liked and that resonated with them and that, um, you know, could happen to something that they're interested in their lives was something, you know, immensely practical. I mean, when I was 18, I, I one of the things I did to hustle cash was I, I drew people's pets and their D&D characters. But, I mean, to, reading through kind of your, your old work, there is this kind of blend of, um, uh, maybe you don't see it as a blend, but I mean, of kind of art and reportage it's always kind of things are mixed together things are kind of bleeding together it's not one or the other it doesn't seem and we'll talk talk a little bit later about kind of um politics and and, and journalism but um do you see a tension between those two things or, or do you see kind of a, a happy a happy kind of coexistence i mean i think there, there can be a tension between those two things it really depends on the rules you're set for yourself. When when I'm drawing something where truth is important, I obviously don't make shit up. Um, but I mean, I think I think that drawings, you know, can be can be as accurate as photos, and in some ways, uh, they can be more transparent than photos because photos have um, a pretense of truth, even though we all, all know that photos lie and that photos are manipulated. There, there's still the idea that when something is in a photo, it's um, it's a true thing. Whereas with um, drawings, the um, the creator's subjectivity is front and center. I'd like to ask you a question about uh, Occupy Wall Street. Back in uh, in 2011, you wrote this uh, article for for CNN, uh, and just to pull out a, a few sentences from that. Um, you write, at the time I made my living drawing for ferociously swanky nightclubs while watching the world crumble and people from Tahrir Square to London take to the streets. Everyone said that Americans were too apathetic for that sort of thing. Occupy Wall Street proved them wrong. While I was initially skeptical, Occupy soon won me over across the street. Zuccotti Park had transformed into a mini city. I was inspired by seeing Americans of all backgrounds and beliefs caring passionately about income inequality and financial corruption, and I wanted to help however I could. Um, how how did this uh, experience you know impact your your work as an artist and uh, did it you know this this newfound faith in in Americans to to get involved did did that kind of influence any of of your subsequent work? Well, before Occupy, I had been a very political person. Um, my dad is a Marxist professor, and I, I grew up you know in a household where like Fanon and Che Guevara were, were everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I didn't. But I didn't. L- put that in my work and especially um you know after the abject failure of the anti-war movement to stop the iraq war um i felt that art like when when you had um explicitly political art it felt like a really preachy lie to me it felt like saccharine and irrelevant and i yeah it was just it was an emotional reaction and i am so i would kind of sort of high or I would kind of instead of making my work political I would just make it kind of mean like when I was working for that really swanky <laughs> nightclub I convinced them to let me make the symbol for their customers into a pig snorting cocaine which <laughs> is actually symbolize? totally accurate <laughs> right. uh, yeah, it's, I don't know that was reportage that was what that was um <laughs> But yeah, so I would draw these like massive audiences of pigs snorting cocaine with my my friends, you know, as gods towering above them. Um, but so I would, you know, I would I would do that. But I I would just sort of express my politics by giving money to things I thought were good. And mm-hmm. then when when Occupy happened, I um I felt like it was a real moment to take sides. I felt like I was being kind of cowardly actually by 
by, by separating this part out from the rest of myself. And so that was really when my art became much more political and also I'm um, much more concerned with the world here and now. Because before that, I tended to situate all of my art in this like sort of like imaginary like burlesque nightclub past. And I was almost like afraid of um, tackling the present with it. And mm -hmm. Occupy, with Occupy, I was like, no, I need something. I need a style that's immediate. I need a style that deals with the world in front of me and that's raw, that is spontaneous. Um, and I don't want to retreat into this sort of weird, um, fictionalized um, past language that I, that I was doing before. So you have this the, the kind of sort of going back to, to, to the question I already asked, but kind of adding in another factor. You also have... Um, at least from the outside, it seems that, um, uh, I don't know if activism is, is too strong a word or it's a word you choose, but it seems you have kind of activism, journalism, art, writing, these kind of things in the mix. Um, is, um, I mean, I guess it comes back to, again to this kind of question of, of how you define yourself uh, and, you know, uh, as an, as, as an artist, I guess you can you can include all of these things uh, in it. But I, I'm interested in kind of what role um, uh, activism plays, if it does, uh, how that kind of um, interacts with with you know the, the kind of journalistic impulse and the writing. I mean, it's 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 always an interesting thing. I, I always say that artists are the most incredibly spoiled people on earth because we do get to do that. We do get to <laughs> mash together all of, all of these genres and say, I'm an artist. Damn it. There, there's your answer. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't consider myself like a, you know, a full-time professional activist. I try to do, do free work for people who I do think are badass activists. Um, and I'm very honored when they use it. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't think you're, um, I don't think your convictions and your beliefs are escapable things, no matter how much you try to um, sort of efface yourself from a story. Um, I think that you, you can't help but seeing through your own eyes. I mean, I see this all the time in U.S. media where, like, the most, like, seemingly objective, um, like, mainstream media um, just takes it as a given that police aren't lying, despite all, yeah. you know, proof to the contrary um, about, you know, police and the frequency with which they lie. I mean, and just um, just taking it as a given that police generally don't lie is um, a massively biased stance that has no basis in reality. But that, but because it's sort of said in these very mature, polite tones, it's considered, mm. um, you know, an objective an objective view of things. But I mean, there's there's a difference between kind of uh, skepticism and 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 that kind of stuff, and um, uh, you know. Um, Trying to think what what the kind of the the next stage in that would be, but I mean there are different there are different levels of of that kind of engagement or pushing back. Uh, of course, of course, of course, but I don't think it's I don't think it's wholly possible to take your your preconceptions out of something. I, I think that you it's your job to against them as best you can and write the truth as best you can. But I I think that anyone who claims that they have totally taken themselves out of what they're seeing is almost put in the position of these anthropologists that would go to you know study amazonian villages and never think about how their own presence there affected the dynamics of the village mm -hmm. like i mean people you know humans are not are not merely cameras and even cameras you know have a place that they're standing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on this on this arc of trying to 
tell the truth, uh, you know, as as best you can. Going from the United States now internationally, you you've also worked, uh, you know, you you put together a series of drawings uh, around Guantanamo, and and you've also uh, done some work involving Syria. Uh, how did you end up in in those locations? In Guantanamo, I I basically had had a lucky break. My friend uh, John Neffel, who's a badass journalist from Rolling Stone, told mm-hmm. me about these press trips they have. And I had never in my life known that Guantanamo Bay had fucking press junkets. I, I, it never occurred to me. <laughs> I always thought that it. it was this... Oh, yeah, you can, you can, you can go see it. Um, and I, I, had, I had never known this, and I, I wrote them up, and I was like, you know, I'm an artist working for Vice. I would like to go into your press junket. And immediately this, like, sort of jokey man wrote to me back and with a nickname for my friend uh telling me to like bring a bikini because there were great beaches there and like kind of like this jovial like sort of all-american demeanor and i was pretty horrified um but i was able to uh go for the first time to the um to see the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed pre-trial hearings and then later i was able to return for to see the prison and um Guantanamo is a very strange and i mean i for me like as an american um it was the most shameful place i've ever seen in my life to be frank i was fucking shaking and nauseous from shame by the time i left because it's like the most archetypically american place in both the evil and then the uh nice cheerful gloss on top of that um but yeah but yeah when when you go there it's this total potemkin tour where Everything um, you just watched, the phone you use is monitored. You have to access the internet through their internet connection, which is monitored. You're um, never really alone unless you're sleeping. You even have to wear a badge around your neck that says military escort all times. And, um, you know, you only see this this really, um, this really, really, really manicured, narrow, like ludicrously propagandistic slice. And um, when I, at the same time that I was you know, going on this tour, I was in really tight correspondence with defense attorneys who were sort of mm-hmm. telling me, you know, the what their clients were going through. And the juxtaposition of, of these of these two realities was I mean it was horrifically disconcerting. It's it's a fucking terrible place. Mm-hmm. Do you feel mm-hmm. your do you feel your your story told something um right. that's the kind of the usual I mean lots of people have been on these trips and we've you know, we've we've all read those little things which which come out every so often. Um, do you, I mean, it felt to me like your your pictures kind of resurrected a little bit of interest. You know, Guantanamo is kind of one of these places where, you know, every two or three years someone will write a big story and then uh, and then people will kind of be reminded of it. But it seemed that your your work when it came out at the time uh, really revived an interest that was different from the kind of just the usual usual kind of stories. Well, I think that one thing that I did that was different was that I tried to focus on a single individual. In general, uh, reporting on Guantanamo doesn't do that, and it's just because it's very hard to do that. Um, You know, a a lot of people in Guantanamo, um, you know, they were very young when they were captured, and um, they're not allowed to speak to the press when they're in prison. And um, perhaps there isn't a lot of detail about them because maybe they came from rural Yemen. Um, So... The what I but what I wanted to do is I wanted people to feel like they were in Guantanamo. I wanted them to, mm. you know, to, to get to get a sense of what of what it's like to you know be held somewhere indefinitely by people who used to torture you, 
and um, then told you all to be grateful because they serve you chicken on Fridays. Um, so I really focused on this one young man, uh, Nabil Hajarab, and I really, you know, I wrote his story. I put everything through his eyes. And I think that individual something made people care about it a lot more because, I mean, statistics are one thing and, you know, structures are, you know, structures are what cause injustice. Structures are what control individual lives, but we ultimately experience joy and pain as individuals. And if you speak about things in a wholly structural sense, while it's a more accurate way to speak about things, very often people just shut off when they're reading it. Did, did you have any int- any um, kind of issues? Um, obviously, you know, when photographers and, and, and people taking video and stuff, there are all sorts of restrictions and you're not allowed to film above the head and all of this. And, you know, they go through your footage. Did you have any... I can just imagine it might be more difficult if someone is there with kind of pen and paper uh, or pencil and paper um, drawing things in terms of the censorship. I had to have my books looked through. But the thing is that when, you know, when you're in Guantanamo, the photo opsec, it's not just like no heads. It's such an elaborate photo, photo opsec that it's almost impossible to take photos there. It's like no heads, no cameras, no multiple buildings, no, no like multiple exits. It, I, I feel almost like there are like, you know, only three places you can point your camera. I'm in complete awe of all, you know, photographers and videographers that are able to do a decent job with it. Um, but because I could leave things out, I was able to... Um, get a lot of views that are just sort of physically impossible for photographers to get. Um, I think that they were, they were not pleased with me for making those smiley faces uh, for the guards heads. (laughs) It's very powerful image. (laughs) Because because that's what, that's what it's like. Like these fucking, these fucking unthinking fucking, these young, unthinking, very, very American, ignorant, soldiers that are carrying out this horrific thing so in a piece for uh, vice magazine in, in may you wrote um uh about uh jezebel uh online website published these photographs of uh lady gaga with kind of this gotcha uh idea behind them of see hey look we found the photographs that were not um doctored and and photoshopped and you know in that piece you go on to argue i think most people when they start reading that will assume that you're saying, yeah, Photoshop is bad because it, it distorts the truth or it could distort the truth and, and all these kinds of things. But actually, you go on to say that, that sort of photographs, and you've, you've already said it in this uh, talk, that photos are, are all lies themselves. Should, should we be more skeptical of, of the images that we see? And then is it equally applicable to you were writing about Photoshop's, but you know, what, what we see internationally coming out of you know, war zones or photography from overseas? I mean, there, there's a number of there's a number of levels on that. First of all, fashion photographs. The point of a fashion photograph is not to accurately represent what someone's pores look like or what the dress looks like. The point is, you know, to create to create to create basically a painting in which you're using film or pixels. And so the idea that there shouldn't be a Photoshop in fashion photography is is just so silly and misguided that I I can't even deal with it. Interesting. Um, in ter- in terms of photography coming out of war zones, I mean, I think that. The way photos lie there very often is um, either by taking a photo of one thing and saying it's a photo of another, which, you know, was seen a lot in in Syria, or Mm -hmm. else by um, taking photos out of context and um, taking something that might have been like a true representation of the moment, but the moment meant something kind of different and then using it um, as a symbol. I mean, I always think there was this 
memoir of this female photojournalist, and she talked about how, you know, she, who is a photojournalist, was covering some protest in Eastern Europe, and she, like, got on top of a tank to get a better view. And mm-hmm. then, because there were a lot of journalists there, someone snapped a picture of her, with, you know, with, without, like, innocently, without knowing, and framed it as if she was a young Eastern European woman who was, like, staring nobly into the future. <laughs> and it's like, while that photo was a true image of, you know, a woman on a, standing on a tank in Eastern Europe, it was not a picture of a young, you know, young Eastern European woman staring nobly into her future. And mm-hmm. um, I think photos, because of, you know, because you presume when you see a photo, you know, everything that's going on, uh, really lend themselves to those sort of misinterpretations. Alex and I, I actually haven't talked about this with Alex, but probably one of the more photographed wars would, would be Afghanistan. And there's always, uh, when, when you're there for a bit, you start noticing this uh, disconnect. And again, it's sometimes not intentional or it's, or it's just misrepresentation, but of uh, things that, you know, you're, you're shown an image of a woman in a burqa, for example, and uh, you're, you're, you're sort of uh, assumed to imply that this is the state of everything in, uh, in Afghanistan. Of course, when, when you see the rest of the, the life there, it, it can seem slightly misleading. Well, that's also the problem with Afghanistan, right? That, you know, you say maybe it's, you know, I wouldn't know what, what the numbers on this would be. But you know, maybe it's the, uh, super fo- been 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 extremely photographed. But uh, the things that have been photographed have been extremely limited. You the know, same thing. The people who who go out and who kind of photograph the war. These are people who are going out on embeds. You know, mm-hmm. we have very little sense of you know village life, uh, Afghanistan, kind of beyond Kabul, this kind of stuff. And, and why, why do you think that is? Is that a safety thing or is that um, sort of dictated by the market of what photos sell? I don't know what incentive there would be for someone to to do that, apart from someone who wanted to do interesting and good work. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's any demand for, you know, photographs of village life or, yeah. Yeah, and probably a combination of the bar, I think, is also fairly low, and that's not to <laughs> degrade the, the work that has been done, but, you know, you get kind of these sensationalist shots. It looks so different from Western or American life anyways that, you know, a photograph of a woman in a burqa walking through a bazaar already seems so exotic and fascinating anyways, um, you know, but you can get these shots. shots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the photo I always think of in terms of um, something being technically true, but um, also a lie, is there's a photo recently that came out of this um, young black boy who's crying and he's hugging a white cop. Right, yeah. Have you, did you, did, yeah. did you see this? And it's like, <laughs> and if you actually look at that scene from different angles, he was standing there with a son that said free hugs, um, you know, that, you know, brought by his parents, brought by his parents. There's like no one around them. And, and if, and when it's shot from a different angle, all you see is this like mob of photographers going in to like photograph this one thing, which is like in no sense archetypical of America or archetypical of the police or um, indicative of anything except that this boy was brought to a protest by his mom with a sign that said free hugs. And yet, because this photo sold America something they wanted to believe, they wanted to believe there's this you know possibility of, of reconciliation um with this very violent police force because it sold this myth that america was really invested in this photo was fucking everywhere despite i mean not really being indicative of anything at all so images alone aren't enough i, d- I don't i don't well i mean they're enough they're enough for beauty but I, they're enough to be beautiful and amazing but i i don't think an image alone can tell the truth of of what's really what's really going on somewhere you wrote uh recently um uh an article about uh, essentially kind of making a living being an artist 
um, how do you make a living? Is it is it is it possible? Uh, I know you are now kind of working on, or may have even finished your book, uh, Drawing Blood. I think it's called. Um, uh, is that part? Does does that bring in money? Is is yeah? I mean, I've made I've made my living as an artist since I was twenty four. I've always done a lot of illustration. Basically, I, I consider illustration art. I don't really put like a, a hard line between what between do you mean fine. By that? Well, a lot of fine artists they um, don't consider it art if it's done um, for yeah. like a, for a commercial client or for a magazine. Right. Um, they only consider it art if it's done exclusively for a gallery, which I, I think is a mm. pretty ahistorical and uh, dull uh, way of seeing things. But I mean, I've I've been making a living drawing pictures since I was 24 years old. I've done pretty much every type of work you can as someone who makes pictures. I've done murals. Um, I have, uh, you know, worked at construction sites, like hand-gilding stars onto, like, giant tableaus of forests. I have, um, you know, drawn <laughs> for the New York Times. I've, um, I've drawn for Playgirl. I've drawn for, pr- I've drawn for pretty much everyone. I've done animations. I've done music videos. I've done rap covers. I, I mean, I, I just I draw compulsively. I draw all the time, and yeah, I've I've been making a living at it for a long time. Um, I don't I don't actually know how anyone makes a living as a writer. I have to say that that always seems a lot more <laughs> precarious to me. Um, and I certainly couldn't make a living as a writer. Yeah, I know, man. It's like it's like oh, I'm gonna you know risk my life and pour my heart into this thing that pays five hundred bucks six months later. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> can can everyone draw? I, I've kind of. Um... Or, 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 or even, you know, would everyone benefit from drawing? Uh, or, you know, is it, is it, is it kind of one of these innate skills? I, I, I always think, you know, a lot of, a lot of things relating to skills that people think, you know, are oh, it's very difficult to get, like, you know, learning languages or things relating to music or um, where people say, ah, oh, you know, you need to be born, born with the talent, and if you, if you haven't been born with it, then, you know, then you'll never develop it. Is, is, is uh, drawing, drawing like that? I think that for there are definitely some prodigies, but I certainly wasn't one of them. I look at my early drawings, and I don't see anything different from any other kids' drawings. But the thing is, I've been drawing Interesting. that was innate, was I had this sort of insane monomaniacal stubbornness where I was willing to push through, I mean, literally, like, uh, over a decade of just drawing like shit, actually, to be honest, and um, <laughs> and somehow keep believing that this was a good idea. And then eventually, like, after, I mean, no, I want to say fucking two decades, two decades of drawing like shit. I, I pushed through that, you know, um, and, and, you know, somehow, I don't know, be deluded enough to think that I could do this anyway. I mean, I think, so, I mean, I think, I think that most people can draw, you know, passably good thing with enough practice the same way that I think that if most people are forced to endure piano lessons for all their youth, that they can probably like play, you know, some piano songs at p- parties and, um, you know, have a lovely and entertaining <laughs> skill. Um, I mean, it d- doesn't mean that everyone's going to become fucking Mozart, but, you know, I think that if you have um, a lot of training in most artistic fields, you'll be able to do it passably well in a way that enriches your life and entertains your friends. Uh, so, so, I, I always think so there is a benefit in terms of, I don't know, how you see the world or something to... To oh, absolutely. I, I, I think that being able to draw, uh, it really gives you permission to look in a way that's actually very socially unacceptable in most places. Every, t- every time I, 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 I draw someone, I, I always have this moment where I'm like staring at them so hard and then I'm like, wow, I, I look like a fucking creep, but I'm allowed to because I'm an artist. <laughs> I'm an artist creep, you know? I could, I could stare so hard at your nostril now. Um, I think that once you... Um, are physically reproducing reality, which is what drawing is, 
very often you're you're seeing reality for the first time in this really really intense way uh i remember the first time i did mushrooms actually i was you know with with my assistant and we're doing mushrooms and i was doing a very small amount of mushrooms because she didn't want me to be annoying and freak out and um i i was i was looking at everything and i was like this feels kind of like it does when you're just intensely drawing something like everything is so vivid and you're so fucking riveted to it that reminds me of a book. Have you read the book uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New Doors? Uh, no, no, Doors of Perception. He writes essentially an entire book on along the, those lines. It was very interesting. He was taking uh, mescaline. Um, very fascinating book. Um, I'm wondering, is is this determination or or you know, it almost sounds a little bit of stubbornness. Is this would this be your biggest piece of advice to any aspiring artists who are hoping to make a practical career uh, drawing? Yeah, monomaniacal stubbornness, and also just, um, <laughs> I mean, I always, I, always, I always say this to people, like, being cynical about the mechanics of how your field works is actually very helpful. Like, I suggest people mm. be incredibly idealistic about your art itself, um, you know, be incredibly true to your work. But I uh, suggest looking in a sharp way at the people who are actually making money, making money off of artists or who are, um, you know, on the business end of your field. And if there are popular beliefs that are exclusively to your detriment and their benefit, like the idea that artists shouldn't care about money, it's probably just put there, you know, so they could make more money. Like it's not actually (laughs) um, something intrinsic to the field itself. Um, You know, just like, uh, beliefs about women um, were very often not actually things that were, you know, beneficial to women at all, but were thing- things that were beneficial to a patriarchy. Are, are there any um, artists you think um, uh, be interesting for for listeners to to look at? I mean, your work certainly kind of gave me a, a new perspective on uh, Guantanamo and and all, well, all of the various things that you've you've been kind of. Um, uh, representing. Uh, is there anyone else that um, is similarly kind of doing doing interesting work to well, yeah, uh, open open minds to to different perspectives and situations and things? I have a few artists that I really love. Uh, first, I want to shout out the street the Egyptian street artist Ganzir. He uh, is living in New York now, but he was one of the sort of iconic artists of the Egyptian Revolution. And I mean. Man, like I, I look at his fucking stuff, and I'm like, look at your line, look at your colors. You're, you're so good. I'm always trying to like learn from them and, and gobble them, and we're, we're lucky enough to be friends. I, I, he did an amazing uh, series of posters against the coup, um, which I think ultimately led to him having to leave Egypt. And I, I really suggest that people check out Ganzier's work. Uh, Wasim Marzuki is a Syrian artist. He's living in um, I think he's living in Qatar now. And, I mean, he, he draws, like, fucking Mobius on acid, but a lot of his work engages in the Syrian war, and I think I think he's a profoundly brilliant draftsman. Unfortunately, there's not a ton of his work online, but uh, if you Google him, you can see some of it, and hopefully he'll have, like, a catalog available. And also, as a photographer, I am obsessed with Clayton Cubitt, who's a good friend of mine. Clayton is someone who, like me, has that sort of obsessive, voracious interest in a lot of things. On one hand, he'll be doing these slick fashion shoots that subvert all sorts of conventions. and But then he um, would also do things like get past police barricades to go down to New Orleans in the days immediately after Katrina and take mm. these pictures of people, you know, who have just been digging out their entire lives from their houses. Um, he's someone who is interested in everything and can turn this um, gorgeous, unsentimental 
eye onto all sorts of subjects. I, I adore him. I've actually gotten to this really obnoxious point where when magazines want to um, want to have photographs of me, I'm like, you're, you're only allowed to have Clayton shoot me because he's that good. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, wondering if we could talk just briefly about your own uh, process for drawing a picture um, or, or drawing, sorry, drawing a, a drawing. Um, like when you sit down, um, are you sitting down? Are there like a certain you know paper that you use, tools that you use, uh, colors that you use over other colors? Uh, does it depend on the product uh, or the project? Um, you know, what what's the first step for for you for for drawing? When I'm doing it in a journalistic context, there are two different ways I do it. In Guantanamo, literally, I was, like, standing there with markers clutched between my teeth, like, while military escorts were dragging me from cell to cell, (laughs) saying, move along. Uh, It was, you know, incredibly fast. I was just trying to kind of stab down what I saw in front of me. Um, Mm -hmm. When I'm doing stuff like that, where uh, time is of the essence, where I can't take reference photos, I tend to Mm -hmm. use um, these, like, fat, gray, brown markers and then, like, these, like, little tiny micron pens, and I just, like, get it down fast, fast, fast. I also do that uh, for uh, courtroom drawings all the time. But then mm-hmm. um, if I'm in a slightly more lucky situation, um, I take uh, iPhone photos, and I'm the world's most shit photographer. No one would ever – I mean, I, like, I'm lucky if my fucking thumb isn't blocking the camera lens. I, I have no talent in this. And so I take these, like, shit iPhone photos – and then when I'm home, I like zoom into them and I like I see what I see what's in them and I focus on, um, you know, the scenes in them or the details in them that I want to bring out. And, uh, you know, that's how I did my, my all my work for, with those migrant labor camps in Abu Dhabi, where mm-hmm. I was like I would take like these photos from far, far away. And then like I would, I would zoom in and I would, you know, get what I was interested in, like a group of guys sneaking wine under a bus or something. So we want to be respectful of your time. Um, did you have a chance to, um, uh, in fact, you told me um, uh, a couple of books uh, that you uh, have, have thought uh, recently interesting? So there, there are two books I want to recommend. Um, one's fiction, one's nonfiction. Uh, for fiction, Sergio de la Pava, Naked Singularity, is this book about a public defender in New York who's slowly going insane through this sort of injustice and evil and flat-out stupid stupidity of the whole uh, criminal justice system in New York. And so as a reaction to this, him and another public defender start plotting a spectacular heist. It's, it's a great book and incredibly philosophical and blackly funny. And I believe he's also a public defender, which is why uh, it rings so, so real. Because, man, like, fucking the New York court system. I mean, it's the New York court system is, I mean, it's the enforcement mechanism of racism. You can't but think that when you go, when you go into a court in New York. And also it's just so uh, banal and, and, like, grinding. It's like this grinding, banal, stupid machine. And he just gets that so well. Um, in terms of nonfiction, I recommend Rohini Mohan, Seasons of Trouble, which is this brilliant, brilliant fucking book on the Sri Lankan Civil War, where she spent five years getting to know these three people. Um, one of them is a, a, a young woman who used to be a child soldier for the Tamil Tigers. One of them is a young man who goes through like detention under the Terrorism Act. And then there's his mother who's trying to get him out of jail and then get him out of the country. And the levels of detail and empathy she gets are staggering. It's one of the most astonishing works of journalism I've ever read in my life, and I hope everyone reads it. I hope this 
I hope everyone reads that book. Rohini was on the podcast last week, and in fact, this is the third yep. week running that someone has picked it or referenced uh, the book. <laughs> yeah, the verdict is in. Everybody should read this book. <laughs> yeah, I hope. I hope that. I hope that Rohini Mohan becomes like one of the most famous young journalists because, frankly, she deserves it. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, how about a film uh, and or a song? Film and or song. God, I. I don't watch um, as many movies as I should, unfortunately. And my musical tastes, I always, I, I don't know. I like, I like fucking old lady music. I, I like listening to Cab Calloway and stuff. Um, in, terms of, in terms of contemporary music, um, Ashru Leila is a Lebanese band, and they're really, really cool. I'm not really intelligent in speaking about music, but I assure you that you should check out Ashru Leila. Um, in terms of movies, oh, God, I... This is going to be so cliche, but I really love Banksy's Exit Through the Gift Shop, and it's one of the meanest, <laughs> funniest, and truest looks at the art world and how bullshit it is. It says things about the art world and how much you can just sort of create an artist whole cloth out of money and hype in ways that mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I, like I, – I, people are fucking scared to say that. It basically gives a how-to of how to create like the pop artist phenomenon with Mr. Brainwash, and it's it's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, just the fucking – the fucking the fucking end of that uh, the end of that movie right like i i'll get way too dorky if i rant on it but i love that movie fantastic well molly that actually uh does it for the show thanks so much for uh talking with us today we really appreciate it this was absolutely wonderful thank you so much for having me